This is Psych, Wine, and Pop Culture, a podcast brought to you by two best friends. I'm Dr. Heather. I have a PhD in clinical psychology, and I live in Southern California. And I'm Kristen, former journalist living in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Join us for a glass of wine, providing a psychological perspective on popular TV shows and movies. And candid conversations about mental health. This podcast is not meant to replace or supplement medical advice from a health practitioner. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Psych, Wine, and Pop Culture. I'm Dr. Heather. And I'm Kristen. And today we're really excited to cover our first psychological thriller movie. So I'm pretty sure you guys can tell from the title already, you know what this episode is going to be about. Can you fake mental illness? It's something that I think Heather and I have discussed in the Nurse Ratchet episode we did in season one, but we want to go more in depth this time with it and specifically talk about a movie called Primal Fear, which came out in the 90s. When was the first time that you saw this movie, Heather? I think it was like a year or two after it came out. Yeah, with my dad. I know, I was pretty young. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, I was like, weren't you like eight? (laughs) This is why I love this type of movies, though. Me me and my dad used to watch like psychological thrillers, scary movies together. Yeah, yeah, my my dad was like that, too. He's like, you can watch Training Day, and I'm like in second grade. I'm like, okay, Um, but I loved it. That's why we love movies. But the only thing is that I remember when there was a movie, he would fast forward through the sex scenes. And I was like, oh, because I was like, I was like, you know, curious, like, why are we fast forwarding these scenes? And he's like, close your eyes. And I'm like, oh, OK, I, what, what, I'm missing the movie. He's like, no, you're not missing anything. <laughs> yeah. So he was very, you know, good about that. <laughs> but I think he likes psychological thrillers. And that's why I like psychology. So <laughs> part of the reason at least and then many 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 years later you became a bilingual neuro clinical psychologist not licensed yet but working on it yes (laughs) okay but you're like 97 percent of the way there well thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) almost you'll get there which is why i love when we cover movies like this because when it is a psychological thriller and there's an actual mental health professional in there and there's an actual neuropsychologist in this movie, you can point out all the things that are like, that's factual, that's not factual. And I think it's super fun. Me too. I I agree. Just looking to see if it's done right or would I really say that or would someone who is a psychologist say something like that? Because movies could get it right, but they can also get it wrong. That's true. And I think it's good for our listeners to know that too. So now they can be in on the joke as well. They can be able to decipher by listening to this podcast whether or not something is represented in the best of light or, you know, not so good. Yeah, that's true. So today, Heather is answering the question, can you fake mental illness? We're going to be using examples from the 1996 film Primal Fear. And this is actually the film debut and an Oscar-nominated performance from Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm excited for this. I think most people don't believe that this was his first movie when they see it because he's so good in it. 
basically he portrays this really seemingly sweet, innocent 19-year-old who's convicted of murdering a beloved archbishop in Chicago. But you don't really know, is he the murderer or is his alternate personality the murderer? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll give plenty of examples. If you haven't seen it, we're going to give a lot of examples. So no worries. So anyway, like I said, we're answering that question because I think that the idea comes across our minds a lot. You know, can people fake mental illness just because we see so many outstanding performances by actors and actresses who portray these characters who have OCD, schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder, like in this movie, and so much more that sometimes I even wonder if someone's capable of convincing an audience, you know, giving this really great on-screen performance, is it that easy to fake? You know, can can someone like in this movie really avoid prison time by blaming it on a mental illness that they don't really have, but can convince other people that they do have. So that's what we're going to talk about in this movie, Primal Fear. Great, great. So like we said, we're going to answer some of these questions. And, you know, don't be shy to let us know what you guys think, too, because we do want to hear what you guys think about can we fake mental illness. So as Kristen was saying, that this movie basically is portraying someone to have multiple personality disorder. So just for a refresher, multiple personality disorder is also known as dissociative identity disorder. And sometimes it's called DID for short, too. And if you guys haven't listened to our other episode where we cover Ratched, I'll do a quick little definition on DID. So DID basically means that someone has two or more personalities. And that can include basically your regular personality and then another personality. So really, you could have one other personality besides the personality you have for yourself. So you really only need two, but some cases have five or six. And then also when you switch personalities, there has been reported symptoms that you don't really remember what's going on or you lose track of time. So we're going to be asking the main question, can you fake mental illness? So what do you think, Kristen? Do you think people are capable of convincing mental health professionals and others around them that they have a mental illness? Um, you know, I think like you said in Ratched, that people could be convincing for a certain amount of time. But if that mental health professional probably has a lot of experience, you know, dealing with somebody who has who dealing with people who have schizophrenia, and then they have this person who claims to have it, but they really don't, I think over a long period of time, they probably would be able to poke holes and notice that well, you know, they're just doing the things that they see on TV or they're just doing the things that you could read about. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I think maybe yes, but maybe not for, you know, like an extended period of time, like years and years and years or something. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's like a full-time job, man. You have to really think about every single move you're making, everything that you're saying, you're thinking. That could be exhausting to do that 24-7. I just think it would be very, very hard to keep it up. Yeah. And, you know, do I think that this movie could have happened in real life where someone fakes having a mental illness to get out of prison time or to get away with murder? I think so. (laughs) I I think someone could slip through the cracks and like this could happen (laughs) in real life. Yeah. And if it's it's part of survival, right? Like if you think you're going to be sentenced to death, you're going to try your best to convince people that you're crazy. It's like part of survival. 
I think I'm going to give everybody a little summary before we get into our wine. So like I said, this movie came out in 1996. It's actually based on a book, so it's called Primal Fear. I got this summary from Rotten Tomatoes. A defense attorney, Martin Vale, takes on jobs for money and prestige, rather than any sense of greater good. His latest case involves an altar boy accused of brutally murdering the Archbishop of Chicago. Vale finds himself up against his ex-pupil and ex-lover, but as the case progresses and the church's dark secrets are revealed, Vale finds that what appeared a simple case takes a darker, more dangerous turn. Come on, guys. That's a pretty good synopsis. <laughs> How do you not want to watch this movie? <laughs> yeah, I've seen this movie like three times. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, definitely. And like we said, you don't have to watch the movie to enjoy this episode. Um, but if you do want to watch the movie, like it's got really great cast. It, the The main actor is um, Richard Gere, who plays the lawyer. He plays Martin Vale. Then you have Laura Linney, who plays the ex-lover, but she's also um, on the prosecution. Mm -hmm. And then you have Edward Norton, who plays the kid who's charged with murder. So there you go. I mean, it's a great cast. Wine time. Okay, you go first then. Okay, first of all, I have a red. I don't know. I just felt like a red. I think every time it gets cold, I really just want to have red wines. I don't know if that has anything to do with that, but I just start to crave them more. But the one that I have is from Temecula Valley, California. It's from Wilson Creek Winery. And honestly, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, guys. But Hero de Evola is the name of the wine. <laughs> it's from 2017. Um, it kind of looks like a Venetian to me, like if I'm at the Las Vegas Venetian. So I tasted a bit of it, and it's actually smoother than I expected. Maybe because I'm craving reds, but... It's really smooth down your palate. It's very, how can I say it? It doesn't have acidity to it. Like it doesn't like linger in the back of your throat like some reds do. It's like very smooth yeah. and kind of like boysenberry flavors I'm getting. There's not really a lot of spices. I would say it's more fruity. And that's about it. It's just very fruity. I, I don't really get like anything too crazy. I think this is a good wine to just sip on. Okay, so I, I cannot wait to show you this bottle because I knew that you were going to love it. Oh, gosh. What does that look like to Looks you? Looks like a tarot card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's the high priestess. If you were a tarot card, you would be the high priestess. Thank you. That's a very, you know, smart card, I would say. Intelligent card. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I just love it because there's a high priestess inside a high priestess inside a high priestess and inside that one is a little keyhole. Oh, I don't know if you can see that. I can kind of see that. It's kind of like that Russian doll thing, huh? Where like there's something within something within something type of thing. I don't know what the meaning of it is, though. Neither do I. It's from Prophecy. That's the name of the company. And it's a Sauvignon Blanc. You know, surprise, surprise, because you guys know I love my Sauvignon Blancs. Um, I just think that they're the best type of white wine because it's not too sweet. It's not too dry. It's always just right. This one is very citrusy, very crisp, lemony. The reason why I picked it was because the back of it said that there were notes of grapefruit and lychee. Do you know what that is? It's kind of yeah, like a, it's a fruit. It's like an Asian fruit. Mm -hmm. So I had tried a boba tea 
that was that flavor, lychee. And I was like, oh, well, if there's notes of that in here, it must be really good. And I can say I, I do taste it. Hmm. Um, and just like, just like any other Sauvignon Blanc, you know, there's always that kind of like grassy taste to it yeah. or aroma. I mean, even though it is a little bit, it should be cold right now in Texas. I mean, you know how the weather is. So it's actually quite hot. And having a white crisp wine like this, I don't feel like is totally inappropriate. So I'm enjoying it. Hey, you can have wine at any time, really. I just been feeling a little bit more the reds lately, which is kind of out of character for me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you have a bunch of reds, so I feel like we might be going down that pattern for... <laughs> I have at least eight reds, guys. It's a lot. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> All right. Well, you better sip on it because I think Boozy Heather is a lot more critical of... What? Of mental health professionals in movies. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I never pressure you to drink, but I think you should in this episode because I oh. think you're going to need it. <laughs> okay, okay. I just don't want to... I don't want to be too critical, though, because, I mean, I'm not in their shoes either. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, we're we're not going to... We're not going to shit on, on her that much. The neuropsychologist in this movie is played by Frances McDormand. And if you guys know her, I mean, you know that she is like one of the best actresses. She's from Fargo, which is her main mm -hmm. movie I think a lot of people know her from. Uh, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. That was a more recent one. She's a really famous actress. I loved her in this movie. I forgot she was in it until I rewatched it. So Wow. Well, let's get into the movie. So the main character that we're going to be talking about is Aaron Stampler, who's played by Edward Norton. So he is a 19-year-old. The first time we see him, he's running away from the police and he's covered in blood spatter. And all the while, the police, the media, like everybody and their mama, they're at the home of the Archbishop, Archbishop Rushman, where he was brutally butchered in his bedroom. And when the police finally catch up with Aaron, he's curled up in the fetal position in a tunnel near some train tracks. We officially meet him a little bit later when a lawyer that we were talking about earlier, Martin Vale, we'll call him Marty, mm -hmm. he sees on TV what's going on. And he's like, oh, well, I'm a defense attorney, so... You know, he likes those big cases, those cases that will put him in front of the media. So the minute he sees it on TV, he's like, I got to go find this kid. <laughs> so he goes to the jail cell and he doesn't really like expect what he sees because, you know, this he knows that this archbishop was brutally murdered. But he sees Aaron, who's like this super shy, timid kid who can't even look him in the eye. And he's like really well-mannered, very polite. He always refers to Marty as sir, you know, like a good southern boy. <laughs> and you can tell that Aaron, you know, he's a fish out of water because he's never been arrested. And he's got like this thick Kentucky accent. And he noticeably stutters a lot when he talks to Marty. And he tells him that he's only been in Chicago for a couple years. Aaron tells Marty the archbishop met him when he was begging on the streets and he gave him a job as an altar boy singing in the choir and connected him with a catholic safe house for homeless youth and uh marty asks you know he's he's not really sure how to word it but he's like so were you in the room when the archbishop was killed and aaron's like 
yes, yes, I was. But there was a third person in that room. And Hardy's intrigued. He's like, okay, hold on a second. You know, so he tells him like, well, tell me what happened. And Aaron's like, well, I was just returning a book to the archbishop. And then I heard a noise. So I go to his bedroom and I just see him lying on the floor and there was blood all over everything. And then I saw a shadow and I saw a person leaning over Bishop Rushman and it looked up at me and it came at me. And that's when, and he just kind of trails off. And he's like, that's when I lost time. So Marty's super confused and he goes, lost time? You know, what does that mean? And Aaron explains, well, you know, it just happens sometimes. I have spells. I black out. I lose time. I can't remember anything. Well, that, you know, that was a good performance by you of them having that interaction. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. Um, So, yeah, losing time, blacking out. Sometimes these are called spells. So with people who have, you know, dissociative identity disorder, I did say that they have to have two or more personalities but they also have to have a period of time where they either lose a sense of themselves, either like they lose track of time and they wake up somewhere that they don't recall, or even kind of feeling like an out-of-body experience where they don't feel like themselves, but they are themselves. It's kind of hard to describe, (laughs) but that's the sense of self that I'm talking about. So with blacking out, yeah, that's that's definitely what he's describing. He's stating that, you know, during this time, basically, I don't remember what happened. And it's a really good case for him to not be able to remember what happened because then he couldn't be put away for this murder. So in a way, it's kind of genius that he thought about it. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, did he have a plan? You know, did he plan this before he went and stabbed him to death? Or did he think of this? when he was running away, you know, those are the questions I have that will never really be answered, but because they're not involved in the movie. Me too. I was definitely thinking that. I think it was probably like a rage killing. Like he just did it and wasn't really thinking through it. So I don't think he had this in mind to have this defense until after he's like, oh crap, I can go to, I can go away for this. Like, what am I going to do? I feel like he had it after. But that's so crazy to me because I I think it's premeditated just because I think that he would have had to have read about DID or multiple personality disorder and be like, oh, this is, would be a good excuse and I could get away with it if I follow X, Y, and Z because mm-hmm. this is what I'm reading about. I don't think he would have known enough about it to be able to go th- to take it that far where he had everybody convinced. I guess that's true. It's possible that he'd been wanting to kill him for a long time, like you said. But I think that night, I don't think he was like, this is the night. I think the way the murder happened, it was out of rage. But he probably did think about it beforehand, like in the past. And maybe that's how he did all his research. Mm, Yeah. Because usually if if you kill someone in that way, that's what they say. If you kill somebody very violently, usually it's out of rage and you're not really like thinking about it necessarily. It's not very collected. It's not very organized. I just don't know. I don't think he was organized in that moment. Oh, yeah. It was a really disorganized killing. But... Anyway, well, we'll go more in in depth on that because he does have a motive for why he brutally stabbed the archbishop to death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, Francis McDormand portrays the neuropsychologist Dr. Molly Arrington, 
who Marty recruits to evaluate Aaron. So in their first meeting, she defines major causes for amnesia as substance abuse, seizures, head injuries, and malingering. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Very familiar. I love that you remembered that. <laughs> How could I not? It's such a weird word. I remember in Ratched being like malingering. What the fuck is that? <laughs> yep. Just a fancy word for lying. <laughs> Basically. So she sets her ethical boundaries by telling Marty. She'll analyze him, but she's not going to validate Aaron's story. She says that she wants an MRI, an EEG, I don't know what the fuck that is, and neuropsych testing. So I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. Okay. Well, I think she was, I mean, on the right track. I mean, usually people don't order a bunch of tests like this. Like, yeah, maybe like a psychological evaluation. So I like the fact that she said neuropsychological. So she wants to go more into like biological processes, neurotransmitters and things like that. So I do like that she brought this up. And EEG, I actually had to ask my husband, Juan, about it because that's what he does for a living. So I was like, could you, you think... Could you see different personalities on an EEG? I mean, he tracks seizures. He tracks, you know, other things. Um, so I was, I asked him. He's like, well, I mean, it depends on the personalities, I guess. If the personalities were different from one another, then maybe you could see a change in brain activity. But I, I wouldn't say that's the first thing you would go to. He, he said more like an MRI would be a better, like, clear picture than an EEG. Because an EEG is just brain activity, like, general. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, at this time, I, I could see why she wanted to do that probably as a way to like rule out anything else. Because no one knows at this time that he has an alternate personality. They just, right? You know, mm -hmm. they just know, oh, he has blackouts. So maybe he does have seizures. And that's why he has the blackouts. They don't yes. really know about the they don't know anything about the other personality yet. So I think she was probably just doing this to like narrow things down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So trying to see any medical causes, but I was more curious, like if you could, you know, maybe see personalities. And according to my husband, he's like, probably not unless they were very distinctly different. And if they were switching at that moment, maybe, but an MRI is going to be a little bit more clearer when it comes to that type of thing. So I think, I mean, it made sense. As far as the neuropsych testing, I don't think they even showed that in the movie. I don't even think people know what that would mean anyways. Do you know what that means? No, I don't know what that means. I thought you would know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked you because usually if you're going to do like a neuropsychological evaluation, you're pretty much going to take like four to five hours of testing somebody. So you test their cognitive abilities, like their memory, their intelligence, their decision-making processes. And then you also test to see if they're lying. Like it's a really in-depth process. And they never even showed anything about that. <laughs> so it's like okay yeah they didn't all you see is them having these meetings in the in a conference room at the jail where mm -hmm. she's like uh recording their meetings but and that's really it i mean she's just talking to them maybe they did those things off camera i mean who knows but they might have because people maybe wouldn't want to see that maybe they think it's boring so <laughs> I mean, it is a movie, right? It is a yeah. movie. You want to see all the exciting things where he's switching his personality. But yeah, I mean, they just show the meetings of them in a conference room and she's recording them um, on a camera for Marty so he can watch them later. 
And she just asks him questions and stuff. And the way that she gathers information is just through having a conversation with him. And that's where she kind of finds out more about these blackouts. You know, when did they start? Well, apparently they started when he was around 12 years old. She finds out that his mother's deceased, that there's a father as well that was in the picture growing up. Um, but he was abusive to Aaron. And he didn't seek treatment at all growing up for these blackouts that he claims to have. Mm -hmm. And even so, like, they had this little part in the movie where, you know, she's like, did you ever see a doctor for these blackouts? And he just laughs at the idea because he's like, no, you only see a doctor in Creekside, Kentucky if your leg is broken. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, he's never sought treatment. So this is what she's thinking, probably. Okay, you know, he's he's probably never had a doctor evaluate him. He's never taken medicine. So we don't really know what he has at this time. Mm-hmm. So the third time that they meet, um, Aaron's a little bit more nervous, a little bit more agitated that she keeps asking him about his girlfriend, Linda. So he says that she took off without a word um, before this whole thing happened with the archbishop being murdered. And then all of a sudden he gets so agitated that his other personality just comes through in a split second and this is the first time that we see it happen where he just kind of like has this moment where he cusses her her out real quick then he snaps back to his sweet little Aaron side again mm-hmm. and she doesn't really know what happened she's like what i mean do you think that that's common i, I know that you've never treated somebody with multiple personality disorder but uh, I would think that they would like go into their other personalities for a long period of time, not just like a split second the way that he did, because he just went from being one person to another person in like a matter of seconds. Is that typical? Again, I think this is like a yes and no question, because, you know, everybody who has, you know, a disorder, if it's DID or bipolar, they're going to have you know, specific symptoms for that individual. So I feel like in the movie sense, they wanted to show the switching, you know, as dramatic as possible. But I could also believe like in a real life situation, if someone did have DID and they were maybe felt threatened or they felt uncomfortable, they might switch very quickly from personality to personality. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but I would say in more cases, they may spend more time with, you know, a different alter that's the personality than others. You know, it really depends. I've seen a lot of just videos of people who um, have stated that they've been diagnosed with DID. And some of them even say that they know about their other alters. And some of them talk to each other. So it's like, you know, everybody's different. You can't really say that this is the only way someone's going to experience DID, you know? Yeah, then I think he's definitely using that to his advantage, Mm -hmm. you know? So what did you think about the interviews? Did you think that they were, like, ethical, the way that she talked to him, you know, as as a mental health practitioner to a patient? Because oftentimes those interactions are not, they're not, like, how they happen in real life. You know, they kind of amplify them or make them just, like, I don't know. I don't think that they really show them that well on TV or in movies. True, true. It depends on the, you know, the clinician and, you know, who's conducting the interview. But I think she did an okay job in the first session. You know, she was asking her, asking him his history, his questions, nothing really, not, not, not anything judgmental, I guess, came up. 
I felt on the second session or third session, she was more judgmental or more biased because she was asking about like sexual experiences. I'm like, where is she getting this from? Like, what was the basis for that? You know, unless like that, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, just seemed kind of out in left field to me because what does sex have to do with whatever's going on here? And she was really pressing on the girlfriend part. So I don't know. I feel like that was, it was a little biased. So I think in general, when it comes to like interviewing someone, let's say if you think they may be malingering or they may be lying about their condition, you want to have a non-judgmental interview style. Because think about it, if you're being attacked, what's your first reaction? She knows that, okay, there was this really weird moment where he seemed to turn into another person, but she's not going to know in that instance, like, oh, he has DID. But um, when we officially meet his other personality, I mean, I think that's when she kind of gathers, okay, yeah, something up here. And I think before, you're right, though, she had some inkling that something was going on, but she just didn't know exactly what it was. So there was some, you know, skepticism from her. So that's why she kind of wanted to push him, I think. But I don't think she should have went that hard because it seems like he kind of pushed back, to me at least. Yeah, he was. Mm -hmm. So when we officially meet Roy, which is his other personality, this happens before the neuropsychologist, can Dr. Arrington, can tell Marty, oh, this thing happened where he just suddenly turned into someone else for like a split second. She doesn't even have time to tell him because he's angry. He had just found out that there were these sex tapes that were done where mm-hmm. the archbishop directed Aaron his girlfriend, Linda, and another friend of theirs who was another altar boy in these videos of them having sex together. Yes, these kids are 19 years old, 20 years old. They have, they can consent, but it was still really unfair of the archbishop to ask them to do these things because when it was against their will, they didn't want to. They probably felt like if I don't do this, I'm going to be homeless out on the street. He gave me a place to stay. He gave me a job. And so this now suddenly there is this motive for why Aaron would want to kill the archbishop where they didn't know about this before because he hadn't shared it yet. Mm -hmm. So so Marty's angry. He bursts into the meeting room and he starts interrogating Aaron about the sex tapes and Aaron's just overcome with emotion and he begins crying. So he turns away from Marty and he starts talking to himself like in the third person, but in another voice. So it's almost like two people are having conversations mm-hmm. with each other, but it's only him. And so Marty's just, you know, kind of confused. But when Aaron turns around, he's just the a person of like the opposite demeanor. You know, he's angry. He's arrogant. And he pushes Marty around the cell for picking on Aaron. And so Marty's like, oh, so you're the guy he calls when Aaron's in trouble. And this new guy says, yeah, I'm the guy. Aaron couldn't kick his own ass. (laughs) And he starts mocking Aaron's stutter. Mm -hmm. So through their conversation, this new guy introduces himself as Roy and explains pompously and proud that he's responsible for killing the archbishop. And it was only Aaron's fault that they got caught. So now they're kind of seeming a little bit more friendly. And Marty tells him about the tape 
that he just found out about. And he asks if that's the reason why Roy killed the Archbishop. But this just made Roy really angry, and he punches Marty. And that's when the neuropsychologist, Dr. Arrington, interrupts. She walks in the room, and when Roy sees her, he just turns back to Aaron. Like, you see this transformation happening from this really violent person back to the shy, timid Aaron. So mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a really weird thing to watch. So, I mean, I'm wondering, like, how realistic that is, you know? Well, a couple of things there. All right. So we did see, you know, that transformation happen. And we see Roy on the big screen, right? So first of all, that's switching, which we already kind of talked a little bit about. But switching from one personality to another. And research does show that it's stimulated by stress. But I also want to note something important with Marty is that, you know, he's obviously very upset, you know, he, I think, if I was him at least, I would feel, were the blackouts even real? Like, you're, are you lying about the sex yeah. tapes? Are you lying about the blackouts? You know, especially if I was a neuropsychologist, I would be really thinking as well, like, okay, is whatever you're saying beforehand actually even true? Because this is a big deal that you didn't even yeah. talk about these tapes, and you know they're going to be found out. This is a really high-profile case. Yeah. So it really begs into question if anything that he said prior is actually truth. And obviously, Roy or his other personality, whoever you want to call is at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obviously, they're wanting to defend themselves. You know, he, he gets a little bit hostile. And we do see that, you know, when people are put into a corner, they're going to be very defensive. And especially when someone is malingering, actually, we actually see with research that when they're put into a corner and they're questioned directly, they're going to be either very aggressive back, hostile, defensive, or not even want to communicate. So I feel the communication was very aggressive between him and Marty. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Aaron or Roy, you know, he knew ahead of time. I think like, like I said earlier, I knew he he researched this. And he probably knew that stress could cause someone to, to go to their other personality for comfort to turn into that other personality Mm -hmm. when they were feeling stressed. So I think he thought like in this moment, yeah, this is the perfect time to do this. You know, yeah, it had to have been. Yeah, I would agree with you. I feel like he was probably waiting for his moment and he finally sees the moment. He's like, this is a time where I'm going to show them, you know, this is what I have and hopefully I make a good performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like Heather brought up earlier, malingering, just to refresh your memory, like she said, it's to the point it's lying. Mm-hmm. Basically lying in order to gain something in return. Like you have a motive. Like if, let's say, for example, in this in this situation, he's lying because he doesn't want to be put to death. His lying is going to get him out of something, basically, or gain him something, his life. So, yeah, like at this point, nobody knows that he's malingering except him. He knows that he's lying to, to save his own ass. But one reason why I don't think that they actually ordered those tests that we talked about earlier was because if they did, I mean, wouldn't they be able to see like like your husband said, like the activity in the brain to see whether or not he has multiple personalities to, you know, what kind of brain activity does it, does that represent his switching, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So you would think like with, you know, other disorders like depression, or anxiety, they all look different. The brain looks different. There's different activities. So why wouldn't DID look different, right? So there's actually some research to show that, yeah, DID can be found with an MRI. Like you can see switching happening. And that's with my neuroscience lovers. You'll love this. The bilateral orbital orbit. No, I can't say it. Bilateral orbital frontal <laughs> cortex regions. So this is actually basically where we have a lot of decision making happening. This is where we're like looking something visually and paying attention to it. And also this is where we kind of make quick decisions. So people who have deficits in this area, they're actually very impulsive and sometimes they have emotional challenges as well. And that kind of is with DID, right? If you're switching from one personality to the other, they're going to be different. They're going to have different emotional states, different decision-making processes. So that is one of those brain areas that's implicated with dissociative identity. It was the 90s. Maybe they, they probably didn't even know that they could CDID and MR. No, but then I don't know, right? Well, this research came <laughs> out in the 2000s, 2000s. So I would say, yeah, maybe not. Maybe they didn't know. She probably just suggested those tests, like I said, to, to just narrow things down or rule things out. Mm-hmm. You know, after that whole big switching scene happens where they see the transformation, Dr. Arrington and Marty convene afterwards and they're talking and she's like, all the signs were there. It makes sense. Aaron's history of abuse, the blackouts, the ellipses of thought, you know, the the fact that he's ambidextrous, that just says it all. It's textbook. (laughs) This is what she says. Textbook multiple personality disorder. And then she calls him insane, which I was like, no, why would you call somebody insane who has, you You don't call people crazy anyway, especially your own patients. Of course. <laughs> right? Even I knew that. And then she tells Marty that, yeah, I want to go on the stand because I don't believe a sick person should go to prison, which, you know, yeah, I could see her thinking that as well. But I mean, what did you make of her being so absolutely sure that it was textbook multiple personality disorder okay (laughs) i think her problem was saying textbook (laughs) she should she should have thought okay if this is textbook like there's something wrong here you know i don't think i've ever like had textbook anything in diagnosing a disorder you know what i'm saying like you always have to think about okay you know, is it bipolar or is it borderline personality? Or you have to think about, is this ADHD or this is trauma? Like, there's so many things that you have to rule out, you have to think about. And then even then, like, it's not textbook, you know? It's just, I felt like she wanted to see something there and she found something. That's kind of what happened with her. And basically, she didn't think about the other symptoms either. Like, people with dissociative identity disorder are also very depressed, to me, Roy or Aaron really don't look depressed to me. They're in this bad situation, but I don't think they strike me as like a depressed person. A lot of people with DID are also very depressed. Think about it. If you can't remember what you're doing or you have no control of your own faculties, you know, you're uncertain about who you are, you're not going to feel the most amazing. You're going to feel kind of depressed you know kind of like unmotivated your concentration's not going to be all there like you know it's just I think she should have looked more into other symptoms of DID but not only like the common textbook type things you know what I mean yeah because like I was saying earlier I'm pretty sure that 
somebody who has worked with this with DID for a while, worked with other people, they would know the little things that aren't always textbook. Like if it was he was only exhibiting textbook symptoms, that would be a red flag, like you said. Mm-hmm. Basically, I I think he does a good job, obviously. (laughs) He does a pretty good job of fooling people, unfortunately. You know, I'm not, you know, the psychologist in the movie. So, you know, maybe I could be fooled too. You know, everything's better in hindsight, right? Because we're the viewers. We have all the information. So even though you already know that he's faking it the whole time, when you're watching the movie, you don't know this. You're just like Dr. Arrington and Marty and everyone else. You believe that he has two personalities. True, true. I, I'm always skeptical person, I guess, because I remember when I watched it with my dad, I remember him telling him, what if he's just faking it? <laughs> and my dad's like, why would he do that? I was like, why would you why would you think that? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I just was I'm very skeptical person, I guess. Very skeptical. Damn, you were like, what? So I was like nine, yeah. nine or 10 when I watched it. Dang, that's that's hilarious that you called it from the very beginning because this is one that like a lot of people don't see coming until the very end i know and my dad was very mad about this because he thought i watched it without him because he's like why would you think that did you see this beforehand because we saw the ending (laughs) and i'm like no i didn't see it beforehand i just i don't believe it like all the way (laughs) so he thought i watched it that's hilarious i guess i'm just skeptical yeah well that and you're really really smart Dr. Arrington does end up taking the stand when they're in trial, and she's questioned by the prosecutor, Laura Linney, or Janet. Janet doesn't believe in the idea that Aaron could have DID, so she questions Dr. Arrington's credentials. She's like, well, you are a neuropsychologist, so what, you're just an academic, you know? (laughs) You don't have any forensic psychology experience? And in the scene, Dr. Arrington says that she spent a total of 60 hours with Aaron. So I wanted to ask you a couple things. First, how did you feel about the fact that she called her an academic as if it were like some kind of slight or shade? And two, is 60 hours like a long time to spend with someone? Would you be able to gather that they do have multiple personality disorder by just spending 60 hours with them? Okay. So, first of all, academic, yeah, that would make me a little irritated. What you're trying to say, all I do is, like, in the lab doing research and I know nothing about clinical. That's what I would think. So, Laura Linney needs to back off for a second. (laughs) Okay? Um, Number two, you know, people who want to testify, like psychologists, neuropsychologists, developmental psychologists, you don't really have to have any forensic training, actually. You just have to be knowledgeable of the laws and the ethics around the courtroom really but if you're an expert in your field Mm. you can be you don't have to be a forensic psychologist to testify for some reason so the other thing she spent 60 hours to me that seems like a lot um, because I do evaluations for you know kids have done evaluations for you know dementia and Alzheimer's Um, the longest evaluation I've done is six hours and I do a diagnosis after that so 60 hours that seems like a lot to me and you would think that after 60 hours, maybe she would have figured it out. But I guess part of it is that she doesn't have any experience treating people with multiple personality disorder. So that could be the other thing, too. And like you said, she's looking for things to fit her diagnosis. Exactly. And the other thing, like we said, you know, she's not trained in dissociative identity disorder. And to even find someone trained in it is pretty rare because 
it is a rare condition. Like your normal psychologist therapist probably has never experienced someone with that. So when someone does finally come to them, they probably don't know what it looks like. So, you know, it may take some time to diagnose it. You know, they may ask for consultation, you know, for someone who's actually treated people with DID. Like, I would think that's common sense. Like, oh, well, I think it's this. It's super rare. That's common knowledge that it's super rare, right? In your field? Mm -hmm. In my field, yes. So wouldn't you be like, okay, what are the odds that I would even come across someone like this? Let me try to find a second, third opinion, you know, more recruitments to help me really Mm -hmm. solidify this diagnosis. That's definitely what I would do. I would definitely get some consultation for someone who knows a little bit more about it or even just another psychologist's eyes. Because again, you know, you want to fit whatever you're thinking. That's what you do. You're looking for symptoms. You're looking for all these things. So it's always good to get a second opinion to kind of solidify like what you're saying. And unfortunately, the psychologist, I felt like in the 60 hours, she probably could have found inconsistencies, like probably in his story, I'm sure, because it's hard to keep it up. And also malingerers, they sometimes focus so much on the compensation part, like that gain, whatever it is, like if they want to get money because they have a, you know, a certain diagnosis or in this case, he doesn't want to die. You know, he wants to be proven that he's insane, whatever, whatever. Um, A lot of people who are malingering, they kind of lose track of what they're actually losing. So malingerers don't think about how the disorder actually affects them, like loss of friendships, for example. Like someone who truly has DID, you're probably going to hear them say, I can't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They don't understand my disorder. You know what I'm saying? Like they're going to have more of those losses to talk about than the compensation. Oh, man, that's just crazy to me. Like, that's why you know it's like a movie, right? It's a movie, guys. All the stuff is in there. (laughs) (laughs) They want to keep us entertained, you know? (laughs) You know, like, that's what makes me want to read the book, because maybe this stuff is in the book, and they just don't have it in the movie, because the movies are only, like, two hours long. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so we get to the really juicy part of the movie, and this is when Marty decides, I need to bring Aaron onto the stand, because what he wants to do is try to get him to switch to Roy so that the jury can see him you know and part of the 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 non-factual uh part of this movie too is that he tells everybody like well i can't change the plea you know i can't have him plea insanity because we're already this far into the trial when in fact it's okay like he could have changed it but you know because it's a movie they have to they have to make it work for the plot mm-hmm. or whatever so So he gets Aaron on the stand and he's trying to tell him, like, hey, be a man, you know, trying to get him to get upset that he turns into Roy. Um, But it doesn't work. So the other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is that you mentioned sometimes people know of their other personalities and the personalities know of the other personalities, right? So when he asks him... Do you know Roy when he asks him that on the stand and Aaron says no? Was that a giveaway or do they not always know? Again, you know, DID is a very individual type of disorder. Not everybody's experienced it the same way. So in some cases, people have no idea that they have other dis- other personalities. 
in some cases, like I said, I, I watched a lot of, you know, case studies of people who have had it because I was interested in it. And um, some case studies that I came across was that some of them actually know about each other and they, some of the personalities talk to each other. So it's really based on the individual. Don't people with DID finally find out that they have other personalities because someone they're around tells them? Yes. And it's usually the host personality that gets treatment. So when the prosecutor, Laura Linney, you know, starts to question him, she's really pushing him. Like you said, Laura Linney needs to back off because she just keeps like going at him. He turns into Roy and then he gets so angry that he like jumps from behind the stand and he attacks her and he's like got his arm around her neck and the guards have to pull him apart from her. What um, Marty wanted to happen was have him switch in front of everybody. So maybe like the case could get thrown out. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. The judge decided that, you know, Aaron was mentally incompetent and they just have to declare a mistrial. And so in a way, I guess Aaron wins, you know, because he's not going to go to jail. He's going to go to this mental health facility where they say he'll probably get out in about a month or so. To Marty, he thinks, well, good, this innocent kid who is sick is not going to go to prison, and that's a good thing. All the while, Laura Linney felt really bad for her character because, she, you know, she's a woman rising through the ranks, and you're really rooting for her, but you also don't want her to win because then that means that this kid will go to jail, but so she loses her job and everything with the DA's office. Um, so afterwards, Marty goes to visit Aaron in the jail cell to tell him the news, and, you know, he's really happy. He tells him, like, yeah, you're going to go to this mental health facility. You know, they're going to take care of you. And then there's a real good chance you're going to get out soon. And so when they're talking, Aaron says, you know, I lost time. I don't know what happened. What happened? And he doesn't, they don't really talk about what happened. But Marty notices that, like, when he's walking away, that Aaron goes, can you tell, can you tell Miss Janet that I'm really sorry? And I hope that her neck feels better. And so Marty just brushes it off. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I will. Then he comes back and he realizes, like, wait, how would you know that if you black out? <laughs> like, how would you know what happened to her neck? Yeah. And then Roy appears again. And he's just as arrogant as ever. Mm. And he's just proudly claiming the fact that he's like, yeah, well, I just had to kill Linda because she deserved it. Cutting up the archbishop, that was just for fun. And Marty's just like, a, he's just shocked. I'm sure you weren't shocked when you were little when you watched this because you said you called it. Yeah, sorry. This is the point of the movie where you're like, wait a second. Like, who are you? Like, who is this? And so Marty's just in disbelief and he's like, so there never was a Roy? And Aaron, he's just so pompous. He's just like, oh my God, Marty, after all this time we spent together, if that's what you think... There never was an Aaron. Very psychopathic, his behavior. Like, he finds joy from tricking people. Yeah. He wanted to, like, say, you know, I was really going in between. Should I tell you as Aaron? Should I tell you as Roy? Like, that's really <laughs> psychopathic in a sense where, like, he just really wanted <laughs> to make someone feel like, ha, I got you. Yeah. And all the while knowing I killed these two people. And I'm going to get away with it. Yep. And, you know, it was a great scene. 
first of all. But I think you made a really good point earlier where you said basically that nobody had told him to this point that, hey, you have a mental health disorder, DID. So I would really like to see what would be his reaction. Then you can kind of see if he's really malingering because research shows that when people are told that they have something, they actually are excited about it or they feel like they're special or they seem to enjoy having a disorder, actually, when really they shouldn't, right? If you have a disorder, you probably should feel disturbed by it a little bit, right? Or a little bit uncomfortable or worried about it. You shouldn't feel joy or, you know, happy about it necessarily. So I feel like I would love to see his reaction if he was told. Yeah, they never did that in the movie. Like, they never had Dr. Arrington sit sweet little innocent Aaron down and tell him, hey, did you know that when you black out, you have an alternate personality Mm -hmm. that you turn to and his name is Roy and he's really different than you. And then to see how he would act towards that, like you said, like that's when you could have seen whether or not he was lying this whole time. And that's the thing. You need that crazy ass plot twist at at the end. You do. You do. (laughs) It's the worst ending because... One, you are completely satisfied as a viewer to have this psychological plot twist. But then two, you're like, holy shit, this guy got away with killing not one person, but two. What they should do is try him for Linda's murder, because at this point, no one else, no one knows that Linda's dead. Mm. But the sad part is, obviously, the archbishop knows to prey on these vulnerable teens who are homeless, who have nowhere else to turn to. And so obviously they must not have family or a support system and they run away and nobody wants to go after those cases. Like if no one's looking for them, why would, mm-hmm. why would, why would their death, you know, the, the cause of their death be pursued? And yes. that's really sad because that happens in real life, you know, and it's just sucks because at the end of this movie, I mean, like I said, he's going to get away with killing two people and, all the while tricking everyone in it that he has multiple personality disorder. You know, I think it, it was a good um, representation of how someone could malinger for sure. And, you know, he did a good job, the actor, the character, you know, the whole write-up of everything. But again, like, because he did such a good job, maybe if he was asked that question, maybe he would have passed the test too in that way, the lying test. <laughs> you know, maybe he could have been, like, feeling ashamed as, like... Aaron, you know, I can't believe I have this. I can't believe I never knew. How could I have not known I had another personality? You know what I'm saying? So we'll never know. I mean, overall, I think that this performance done by the actor, by Edward Norton, was like, he just blew it out of the park. Mm -hmm. Like, for the script he was given, it wasn't the best movie in the world as far as, like, the way that the plot was, was it factual, like about the legal stuff? Not really. About the health stuff? Not really. But what he was given with and what he turned it into, I feel like he just did such a phenomenal job. And this is like a performance you want to watch. And it's a classic performance that you'll you'll watch, you know, after years come, obviously, because we watched it again now. (laughs) So it's definitely a classic. I have one movie fact that I want to share with you because you always surprise me with uh, mental health facts and stuff. So okay. I'm give you one that might surprise you. All right. <laughs> let me let me hear it. So when Edward Norton auditioned for this role, 
he walked into the audition room talking in this uh, Kentucky accent Mm -hmm. the entire time. And people didn't know that he wasn't from Kentucky until they were already filming and stuff like that. And they realized, like, he doesn't really have a Kentucky accent. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that good. Wow. He really just went full (laughs) character on that, didn't he? That's crazy. Oh, yeah. He was super, super committed. Yeah, I think so. This was such a fun episode to do all together. I feel like we hit a lot of stuff, malingering and multiple personality disorder. And I think we answered our question. Yeah. Can someone fake mental illness? And I would say yes, short term, (laughs) like you said. (laughs) It's always those classic yes or no answers you always give. I know. People probably hate that about it. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It's never just so black and white for me. There's some gray areas here. (laughs) If you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to whatever listening platform that you're on. And please, please leave us a review because that's how our podcast grows. And uh, be sure to share with friends as well because chances are, if you love this podcast, your friends will too. We just love our fan base like we can't even describe to you how much how good it feels when we see that people are listening and leaving us positive comments and reviews it just means the world to us because we love doing this to spend time together as friends but um it feels good knowing that another you know community is kind of growing and and supporting us yes we love you guys until next time This podcast is not meant to replace or supplement medical advice from a health practitioner. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. 